before we get going, here's the bit where I remind you that nothing we discussed should be considered as investment advice. This conversation is for informational and hopefully entertainment purposes only. So while we hope you find it both informative and entertaining, please do your own research or speak to a financial advisor before putting a dime of your money into these crazy markets. You're about to listen to a special preview edition of the Grant Williams podcast featuring my very special guest, David Dorr. David is the founder and CEO of Coro Global and the CIO of Dorr Asset Management. In this hugely enjoyable conversation, we dive into the world of distributed ledger technology as David, a huge believer in DLT, explains why he thinks Bitcoin will soon be obsolete along with the vast majority of tokens, but that something hugely transformative will rise from the ashes. David has a healthy skepticism about much of the crypto space, despite being well-versed in the technology, and he lays out the reasons for his unwillingness to buy into the current narrative that it's Bitcoin that will ultimately be the last coin standing. Based on years of experience in fintech, David explains why correspondent banks are so important to the crypto ecosystem, why he believes Tether to be a gigantic fraud, and why tokenless blockchains are the future. Every episode of the Grant Williams podcast, including The Endgame, The Super Terrific Happy Hour, and The Narrative Game, is available to copper and silver tier subscribers at my website, grant-williams.com. Copper tier subscribers get access to all the podcasts, while members of the silver tier get both the podcasts and my monthly newsletter, Things That Make You Go Hmm. So, if you enjoy what you hear on the show, and you want more high-quality content like it, please make your way over to grant-williams.com and join our exciting community today. And with that, please enjoy the show. David, welcome to the podcast. It's, uh, it's really good to have you with me. Thank you, Grant. Appreciate you uh, having me on your show. Yeah, there's so much to talk about. And I, I'm interested in your background. I'm interested in your views on not just the macro world around us, but uh, distributed ledger technology and the cryptocurrency space. But before we get into all that, just give people your background because it, it's kind of varied and interesting and, and I think it'll help frame the discussion nicely for people. Yeah, so I, I do have, uh, thanks to just kind of a haphazard career, I, ha- I have an unusual background that intersects with uh, 25 years in capital markets on the global macro side, originally as a commodity trader, growing up as a teenager in the Midwest, that also dovetails or intersects with the financial technology space, which is you know, more popularly known as, as fintech these days. And within that, that's the field that I've worked in. And uh, as I like to say, I know a lot about a little. Um, if you were to take me out of either one of those fields, I, I could barely tie my shoes. Yeah, it, it's good that because Wall Street is populated with people who, who know a little about a lot. It's far <laughs> more dangerous, trust me. That's true. That's true. Let's talk about your finance background first, mm-hmm. and then we'll get into the fintech stuff because you, you know, you're, like me, a macro guy, more or less. Yeah, that's right. So just kind of a, a little bit of history on it. Started off as a teenager trading uh, commodities in the Midwest with my younger brother. And uh, we thought that we were going to be maybe the next you know, Soros and, and Rogers. Uh, and we moved to Miami in 2001, originally to set up a, a global macro hedge fund. And uh, it's kind of funny, if you were to look at our proposal and our pitch deck back then, it looked like two kids with crayons had put it together. But uh, we we thought it looked cool. And coincidentally, around that same period, there was a uh, a growing asset class that was gaining interest on Wall Street, which was the secondary market for life insurance. 
And as we happen to be going out and presenting our, our new startup hedge fund to prospective investors, there was a financier that recruited us and said, hey, look, this is a cool idea, kids. Why don't you put that on pause for a moment? Come work in this industry. You can make some great money. The commissions are amazing. It's a new asset class. And there's some good opportunity. And this is a really important part of our career because a lot of what you're going to hear with, with my perspective today comes from this unusual background, this kind of you know departure outside of macro and into uh, fintech and a different asset class. And so, of course, the first thing that my brother and I asked uh, this gentleman, we said, well, what is the secondary market? It's the secondary market for life insurance specifically, a very unusual asset class, a little bit morbid, if you will, because effectively banks were buying pools of life insurance policies and they're betting on when people are going to die. And that's just how it works. Yeah. <laughs> so it was an interesting time because at this point, that industry was, for the most part, unregulated. And the broker commissions, like a lot of aspects in, in all financial markets, were just completely enormous, as much as taking 30, 40, 50% uh, commissions on client transactions with no disclosure rules whatsoever, <laughs> right. of course, right? And it was just kind of the wild, wild west. And, and my brother and I, we got in there. And the first thing that we noticed, Grant, was that when you look at life insurance as a market, Life insurance is a multi-trillion dollar market, just in the US and certainly globally. And obviously capital markets are multiples of trillions of dollars. But these two markets, the way they interact with each other is like two different language sets. And as a good example might be uh, Spanish and Japanese. They're just structured very differently, the way the yeah, languages yeah. work. And we realized that the opportunity was we were sitting right in the middle of these two worlds coming together and nobody had realized it yet. So in 2004, we started developing the first electronic trading platform for that industry. And our prediction was that regulators were going to come in, clean up the industry, start requiring disclosure, transparency for customers, and it would become a much more heavily regulated market. And as it did, that would also fuel a shift into larger institutional participation. And that's effectively exactly what happened. And since we were the only guys in the space with any type of trading background, we took advantage of that. And we said, well, there's a lot better way to move these instruments around. And so we created a company which was called Life Exchange, launched that formally in 2005. And we became the first electronic trading platform for the life insurance industry. And this was, to be clear, this was a institutional trading platform. So yeah. all our clients were big insurers, predominantly you know, Wall Street investment banks. And what was interesting about that, and the reason I share this background, because this will lead into our, our views on the other stuff, is that it's an interesting phenomenon to come into a new asset class, create an exchange, and then create liquidity for that, right? So these are the kind of things people are learning about in the crypto yeah. space right now, right? <laughs> I'm yeah. sure the pennies are dropping in everybody's listening. Yeah. The same way they are in mine. <laughs> exactly. And so you, you realize that it's not the uh, Kevin Costner field of dreams equation where you build it and they'll come. Liquidity is a very funny animal. And just because you have an exchange and you make something that's cool and it's got a nice user interface doesn't mean that uh, you have any type of liquidity to enjoy there. Liquidity is a very funny beast. And, and the way that you, you bring that together is an, an, an important. So this was fascinating for us because we worked in a strange asset class and having built a, it was a very regulated arena too. I think at our peak, we had something like 127 licenses in the United States. And so we got very good 
part of my brother and I's macro background was plotting regulatory trend paths. We feel that that's something that people look at policy and macro, but plotting regulatory trend paths is a really niche area where you, you can get some alpha, if you will, you know, to, to use an overpopularized term, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> alpha for whatever that's, that term is worth these days. Um, so that was our viewpoint. And then you learn about this kind of internal plumbing. So you learn what it's like to deal with regulators. Since we had so many, I was on the phone with regulators practically, you know, felt like a daily basis. And you learn a lot about how they think the mistakes that they make, what they're trying to do as good human beings themselves. You know, we tend to think, uh, you know, as free market proponents that, you know, regulators are just pains in our ass and there's plenty of that too, but they also, there's a lot of them that are trying to do good. They yeah. want to protect the consumer. They're not trying to get in the way of markets. They just want to have clear frameworks and that's fair. So we worked in that space. That was a background. Worked in that space uh, until 08, 09. We all know what happened in 08, 09. Coincidentally, our three largest clients were Bear Stearns, Lehman Brothers, and AIG. So, uh, right. so when people talk about living through the financial crisis, we were in front row seats to that, no watch, watching our clients blow up. Uh, we did survive as an exchange, but it didn't really make any difference since our clients had died off and the volume for that asset class you know, dropped off uh, dramatically. Uh, so we returned to our, our macro roots and we set up a multifamily office that's door asset management. That's the one that's you know been in Cayman for the last decade. Mm -hmm. And we serve primarily international families for Latin America. So that's the background, that, that context. So having been in macro, being in fintech, that's what led us, the same time we we're setting up the family office, to have abundant curiosity when Bitcoin first came out. Yeah. And we felt that we had a better than average, you know, we're not computer scientists, but we felt that we had a better than average understanding with how to dissect Bitcoin when it came out. And look, I wish I could tell you I was a clever guy that we just punted on Bitcoin and, you know, then I'd have a 120 foot, you know, yacht parked over there in, uh, in the harbor, but I don't. And the reason for it is because we felt that there were some very, very key fundamental flaws, both technologically as well as economically. So that was the background. Well, we can jump into what some of those is for. Well, look, there's, I mean, there's so many places we can go with this. <laughs> yeah. That's why it's so, it's so fascinating, you know. I, I guess let's go back to that reinsurance exchange. Um, mm -hmm. Because as I said, you know, as you're talking me through that journey, the, the pennies are dropping left and right in my head. And I'm sure everyone listening to this is, is recognizing exactly what you just laid out there. And when you come onto the crypto space, the beauty of Bitcoin is I guess it's simplicity, right? It's not complicated. So when you talk about how you're not a computer scientist, the beauty of Bitcoin is you don't need to be a computer scientist to understand the design, to understand what it can do and the promise that it offers. You know, I, I found that for me, it came from my background in the precious metals industry. I recognized it for what it was immediately. But let, let's talk about those concerns and those potential flaws because, you know, that's where, to me, the interest lies. You know, I get the promise, I get the dream, I get the ideal. I've watched that ideal become less and less important and the importance of number go up becoming more and more important. Um, right. And so I'm, you know, I'm always interested to talk to people like you who understand the technology, who understand what it's supposed to do, but have those concerns. Because look, there are any number of people I could sit and chat with that will tell me Bitcoin is the next big thing and it's going to rule the world and you need to buy some and all that. That's, that's great. And there are plenty of venues that people can go to to hear that. Mm -hmm. I'm much more interested in the people that say, yeah, that can happen, but 
here's the other side of that. So walk me through your journey with Bitcoin in mm-hmm. particular from the beginning and then those flaws as you kind of dug into it, how you saw them arise. Yeah, so one of the first things that I always like to share with people The full conversation is available to subscribers to the copper and silver tiers of my website, grant-williams.com. Nothing we discussed should be considered as investment advice. This conversation is for informational and hopefully entertainment purposes only. So while we hope you find it both informative and entertaining, please do your own research or speak to a financial advisor before putting a dime of your money into these crazy markets.